Hello everyone, my name's Brogan. I'm one of the team here at St. Thomas's. I'm training as a vicar. I'm married to Beth just over there. And it's a joy to be unpacking Genesis 1 this week. Now, to kick us off, I want to do a little thought experiment. I want you to imagine that sometime around Christmas of 2019, do you remember those days, long before we ever heard of COVID, uh, you had enjoyed a nice glass of sherry, maybe a little bit of cheese, and you drifted off into a blissful nap on Christmas Day. After Robert testifies. He's like, that, that's what happened. I, I was there. And... Uh, <laughs> And you drifted into a beautiful sleep for approximately 24 months. And you woke up just this afternoon and looked at the news. What in the earth would you be thinking? (laughs) What in the earth is all this COVID stuff that is going on? What is a Zoom room? And how in the earth are Newcastle United, the richest football club in the Premier League, and still lost to Cambridge United yesterday, 1-0? No, I'm not sore about it before you ask. You see, living in one moment without understanding what has just come prior would be immensely disconcerting. Immensely disorienting. And that applies uh, to today in relation to yesterday, this year in relation to the last. And it also applies in relation to following Jesus, which is why we're going to spend the next three weeks in the book of Genesis, right at the start, the foundations of Scripture. Because how we follow Jesus in this chapter of life is an outworking of the first three chapters of the Bible. They're foundational. And what we're going to see today is this, that the creation of God is a revelation of God. That is to say that God, how God makes the world tells us something about who he is. And today we're going to see God's power over us, God's purpose for us, and God's pleasure in us. Now, you might be thinking as we, um, as we read these uh, beautiful passages from Scripture, particularly about science and how for some time there has been the inclination to misappropriate these uh, verses as a physics textbook. And I want to start by saying that these beautiful chapters of Hebrew poetry tell us about the most fundamental questions of the universe, namely who made it and how we relate to him. And these are the two questions we're, we're looking at today. Science and faith have been unhelpfully pitted against each other in a somewhat 20th century project uh, that wanted to basically see who would win in a fight. And as it turned out, they were both wrestling, but they were wrestling with the question of what is true. And they weren't wrestling against each other, but in partnership with each other. So if you're new to faith here today and you're questioning this, I just want to make really clear that To be a Christian is not to reject science, but rather to understand science as the exploration of the created order that God has made. And if you want to unpack that more, I cannot recommend enough the Alpha course, and there's a particular session on there, which is so helpful. So let's start then, God's power over us. The first thing that we cannot help but notice when we look at this passage is God's 
power. In verse 1, he creates the heavens and the earth from nothing, making a formless and empty place. And then each day, he speaks to distinguish between the day and the night, the sky and the sea, the water and the land, the man and the woman. At the voice of God, creation takes shape. The animal kingdom in all its variety and splendour is designed by the command of God in verses 20 through to 25. The stars are flung into space with the sun and the moon working in harmony together by his ordaining in verses 14 through to 19. Immovable mountains are moved into position. Unceasing waters are stopped at the shore. And the incandescent light of the sun is tempered as the earth rotates on its access, all at the voice of God. Because the creation of God is a revelation of God, when we see all this, it teaches us about the power of God. I wonder what the most uh, incredible natural phenomenon that you've ever seen is. Maybe you've seen the Grand Canyon or you've been caught in the midst of a tropical storm or you've looked down from the top of a a hill over the land uh, sprawling out in front of you. Beth and I absolutely love hill walking and going up in the hills and there's been a number of times that we've just been lost for words, a bit overwhelmed by the, the sight that is in front of us. Or we've been um, amazed when fog has descended and you can't see the person you're with or the path that you're on. These are moments when we're reminded of the power and the beauty of creation. It goes without saying that this is not an experience that is exclusive to, to Christians. It's something that we all share as human beings. It's common to each of us that creation takes our breath away by its boundless beauty. But what we see in Genesis is that the world is not accidentally beautiful, but intentionally beautiful. When we see the beauty of creation, we're being pointed to the perfect power of the God who made it. It is not just an accidental evolutionary response. It's a gift from God that testifies to who he is. Our hearts are meant to marvel for joy and and declare God's praise when we look at creation. Verse 19 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the work of his hands. But this trust in the power of God over creation is not just something that relates to the soil and the sea, but to all creatures on earth, including us. As we see in verse 27, God made mankind in his own image. Now we'll come on to what that image means in just a moment. But for now, what this verse tells us is that the God who formed the mountains also formed you and me. Now I don't know where you're at with God. Maybe you have come here today firm in faith and excited to grow in what God has got for you. Maybe you're brand new here and you've never really thought about God before and you've just come to church, maybe been invited by a friend. Maybe faith for you is something that's really hard at the moment, something you're finding really difficult. I don't know where you're at with God, but I do know where God is at with you because it's written right here in scripture. The God who spoke the stars into space, who holds the tectonic plates of the earth in place, knows you, made you, and loves you. 
which means that that situation at work, which you feel trapped in, is overshadowed by the power of God. That huge life change that has just happened or is coming down the track is held within the power of God. That illness or that injury, which is dominating your thoughts, is subservient to the power of God. We meet here today as brothers and sisters who call this all-powerful God Father. And that changes how we think, it changes how we pray, it changes how we interact. So this passage reveals God's power to us. Secondly, it reveals God's purpose for us. When I was at school, somewhat strangely in a business studies class, looking back, Mr Bradshaw announced that that next week he'd be telling us the meaning of life, the universe and everything. You can see where this is going. I'm, I wasn't a Christian at this point, and I was very excited about this. I thought it sounded rather good and a far better use of time than learning how to read a profit and loss account, which, being dyslexic, I was absolutely terrible at. I don't know why they let me take business studies. Anyway, I was genuinely hopeful. And the next week came along, and we got the entire way through the lesson without Mr Bradshaw giving us this vitally important piece of information. And I didn't want to look stupid, so I didn't say anything. But thankfully, my friend had, uh, had no such qualms and whacked his hand in the air and said, excuse me, sir, what is the meaning of life? And Mr Bradshaw giggled and said, hmm, 42, like it was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> And my friend Chris told me that this was a joke from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I thought that Mr Bradshaw was a terrible comedian. But that was the first time in my life that I realised that, rather pointedly, I didn't know why I existed. I was perfectly happy. You know, I wasn't unhappy about it at all. I just assumed that no one really had any good answers, and nor did I. Little did I know that there is a book that would tell me about the meaning of life. But it is not... The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Look at me with me at verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is not the whole of the meaning of life, but it is an essential building block. The word image here tells us something vital about what we're created for, our, our purpose. You were not made simply to fulfil an economic role for a particular company. You were not made to do one particular task. You were not even made to be in a particular relationship with a particular spouse, good as those things are. You were made for something much higher, and that is to bear the image of God in creation. Michael Heiser, the Old Testament scholar, puts it like this. The image is not an ability that we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to image God. And we'll come to what that means in just one moment. But first, let's note, lest there ever be any doubt, that both men and women bear this image equally. In fact, as verse 28 makes clear, not only do they equally bear God's image, but their intrinsic differences equip them to bear God's image in creation. God tells them to be fruitful and increase, something we need physical difference for and to rule over creation together. Whether you are male or female 
or find those categories really difficult. God made you with a purpose that you would bear his image in creation. Your gender is not a biological accident and your purpose is not something that is arbitrary or self-determined. You are made with intention by God himself. So what does image bearing mean? Well, it means that we are in a living relationship with God and we share with God in his rule over creation. Verse 26, God's specific intention in making humanity is so that, it's a a statement of purpose, we may rule over every other creature and by extension, the created environment. However, in light of some of the, the terrible destruction of creation that we see through climate change, many have said that this word rule is the basis of much injustice and abuse. Maybe that went through your mind when Tom was reading the passage. What we fail to appreciate, however, is that we were meant to rule, but to rule on God's terms. This was never meant to be something that we did independently of God, looking to our own internal moralities, or for that matter, to a profit and loss account, to decide what is right and wrong. There was always meant to be a sharing in the rule of God, rather than making our own rules. And the problem is, as we'll see in two weeks' time, in Genesis 3, is that we say no to the rule and reign of God. Either he really liked that, or he didn't like that. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. The problem is, um, yeah, uh, that's completely lost my place. Uh, we say no to the rule and reign of God in preference for our own rule and reign over our own lives, and by extension over creation. You see, climate change is a visible display of the invisible state of our hearts. We were made to rule under God, but we've tried to rule without or over God, and it has destroyed what he gave us to look after. That applies to creation, but it also applies to our money, to our time, to our work, to our relationships. We were made to have an impact on the world, but that impact was meant to be to share in God's impact. That's the bad news. What's the good news? How does any of this change? Well, we need nothing short of the right order returning to creation. We need humanity to be brought back into a relationship, a living relationship with God where he rules and reigns. We need to be forgiven for the ways that we have not lived in this world as God would have us live. And the whole natural order needs to be reassured of its hope and redemption. And that is exactly what happens in the person of Jesus Christ. St. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes this. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. He goes on. And God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. The whole created order by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
You see, the first person to truly live as God commanded in Genesis 1 did not arrive until God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. He is all over Genesis 1. Luther said this, that whilst we have to read the Bible forwards, we can only understand the Bible backwards. That is to say that Genesis isn't just about the first Adam, it's about the second Adam. It's Jesus who fulfills humanity's purpose. And we, his church, are those who are part of this new creation that's waiting for its arrival when Jesus returns. And this is why when we hear about the terrible devastations of climate change, we can neither be passive nor fearful. Genesis closes down both options. We cannot be passive because we are called to steward the earth. But nor can we be fearful because we have a hope in the reconciling power of Christ to restore all things. We're citizens of a coming kingdom where all creation will be restored and redeemed. And part of that is the way that we treat the planet. Our small ecological changes aren't going to change an entire economic system overnight. But we do them because they are ways that we herald a new age when all creation is redeemed and restored and brought into right relationship with God. Our campaigning matters not because humanity can save the planet, but because God can and the time is coming when he will. And the same is true over over every other ethical area of our lives. We herald the coming kingdom by the way we live. The way that you speak up for truth and justice in your workplace heralds the coming kingdom of truth and justice that Jesus is bringing. The way that you commit to healthy friendship speaks of the way that we will relate to one another when all creation and humanity is redeemed. The way that you treat your husband or your wife speaks of the coming kingdom when God's vision of male and female is perfectly restored. These things matter. Because your life has a purpose. And that purpose is to bear the image of God in creation and through Christ to share in the new creation. And that is much better than the number 42. (laughs) Finally then, God's pleasure towards us. Let's look at uh, this phrase that occurs five times and then is completed with a sixth. God looked upon the land and the sea, verse 19, and calls it good. Then he looks upon the plant and the trees and calls them good in the scriptures. He made the sun, the moon and the stars, verse 18, they are good. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea, they are good. The animals he calls good, verse 25, and then he crowns creation with his own likeness, human beings. And it's not just good, it's very good. Now, I don't know what you would say if I asked you to tell me what the gospel was in one sentence. You might say something along the lines of, Jesus came to die for our sins, or the world has fallen and so Jesus restored it, or you can be forgiven for the wrong in your life by the cross. And all these statements are true and beautiful and wonderful news. But the full good news of Jesus doesn't start with human sin. It starts with divine pleasure. 
The gospel starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. And I say this because many of us have got an unhealthy image of God. I've got a good number of friends who would say something along the lines of, religion is about people trying to please an irrationally angry God. There's this idea that God's primary disposition towards us is irritation or annoyance or anger, that he looks upon the world in some sort of unmerited disdain, supplying us with rules by which we might somehow get into his good books. And so my friends conclude that they could never believe in such a God. What they don't realise is that neither could I. Because the God of Scripture, of whom creation is a revelation, looks on all he has made with pleasure and joy. He declares the world very good. He is not a God of irrational wrath, but of joyful pleasure. He rejoices in his creation. He looks upon the planet with love. Now, this does not diminish the reality of human sin. In fact, it makes it all the more terrible that we'd rebel and sin against this God who has nothing but love towards his creation. It is the very loving heart of God that makes our rebellion all the more dreadful. Think about it. If God looked on creation and said, what a waste of space. And then humanity turns up and he's like, oh man, it's got worse. You see... One person thought that that was really funny. (laughs) You see, rebellion against such a God may be justified. But the God of Scripture looks on his creation and says, this is very good. Perhaps you recognise this tendency in yourself, that your default assumption is that God is needlessly angry. And if so, you may have spent a good chunk of your life being scared of him. Your faith may be marked more by fear than by hope. You may well find it difficult to pray and relate to God personally. And all of this is not because God is distant from you or angry at you, but rather because you have not yet heard the truth of God's words, that he first looks at his creation with joy. And God's pleasure does not stop in the garden, but runs all the way to meet us in Jesus Christ. As we looked at in Ephesians 1 towards the end of last year, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus. Why? Verse 5, according to his pleasure and will. And today, maybe this is a turning point for you. A turning point where you realise that God's first words over the world were of love and not anger. So three ways then to wrap up that we can live out this narrative from the text in our lives in this coming week. The first is to trust in the God of power. In the midst of everything that's going on around us, the most countercultural thing and the most powerful thing that we can do is to trust that the God who made all things has the power to renew all things. You might feel as if you're alone or trapped in a situation in which you have no power, but in truth, you have unlimited access through Jesus Christ to the God of all power. Now, this is a reminder for us to daily bring to God in prayer those areas of our lives where we desperately need his power. 
So I want to gently challenge us this week. Is there a difficult situation at work or at home or in a friendship that you're not bringing before God? There's no shame if the answer is, oh, actually, no, I, I haven't prayed about that, come to think of it. There's no shame, but there is an encouragement to do so. He's the God of all power and we're invited to come into his presence and to pray to him. And the second way to dwell in the narrative of this text this week is to live in the purpose of God. Now, in small groups this week, we're going to unpack this question. What has God given me to rule over on his terms? You bear the image of God in creation and you have the power to affect change for God's glory. You've been given areas of authority. I have not been given authority over this sound system. Let me tell you that. Now, whether it is over the way that you teach your children or over the way that you lead your business or over the way that you testify to God in your friendships or the area of responsibility that you've been given at work, God made you to bear his image in that place. You may call it a dead-end job. God calls it the place that he's placed you to bear his image. How are you showing God to the world in your life this week? If prayer is bringing um, the world before God, then everything that is not prayer is displaying God to the world. I'd love to invite Will and the team up as we think about our third and final way to live out the narrative of this text this week. And that is to rejoice in the pleasure of God. Maybe this is where you need to start today. To know that God's primary disposition towards us is love. Before we do ever so much as lift a finger, God loves us. Before we ever repent and say sorry for the wrong in our lives, God loves us. For God so loved the world first that he sent his only son. His love precedes all things. And I do this, and I say this not to minimize the gravity of sin, but to maximize the greatness of mercy. Do you need to come before God today and ask for a fresh revelation of his love? Perhaps that's what you want to do if you're baptised when you come forward and receive communion in a moment. To ask for a revelation of God's pleasure towards his creation. Perhaps this is what's been holding you back in your relationship with God. And if so, come to God today and hear his words of pleasure and of peace over you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.